Instead of opening with a scripture again, what I'll do is just read this paragraph and then we'll pray and then we'll dig in and we'll look at the scripture references as they come up. Chapter 17, paragraph 2, we're studying the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And this paragraph says that this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace." from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Let's pray that God will bless our time. Father, we do thank You for another opportunity. We pray that You'd bless our time, that You would teach us. Lord, teach not only our minds, but our hearts as well. Stir our hearts to love You, to to be grateful for You and Your salvation. Lord, help us to see that were it up to us, we would be lost forever. But because of Your great mercy and the great love with which You've loved us from all of eternity, You've saved us and You keep us, You sustain us, You are saving, You will save. Thank You for this wonderful grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've seen, we we broke the last paragraph up into two lectures, and we've seen that this perseverance of the saints in faith until the end of our lives or until the return of Christ only makes sense when we consider salvation first and foremost under the light of a work of God in us. We, We must approach salvation first and foremost from that understanding. God has done something to us. We call it perseverance, which is an action that we perform, we persevere. We call it that because this work of God does actually produce something in us which is then worked out by us in the face of all of the difficulties of living in a fallen world. We must persevere and we will persevere. And hopefully you've been able to see when we begin to unpack this doctrine that the focus is not so much eternity. But, but now, eternity is a part of it, a small part of it. But the focus is really on living the life of faith in the present time. We persevere in the faith until we die or Christ returns. But at that moment of death, faith is no more. Faith becomes sight at that moment. And so th- this deals primarily with our endurance in the faith in this life. Now, everything in that first paragraph is going to be opened up a little more in the last two paragraphs. We're just going to deal with paragraph two tonight. If you have been here, you're going to hear things that seem like things that I've already said before, only a little more specific. If you haven't been here, all of this is going to be brand new for you. And so you'll leave really excited while everybody else just leaves saying, yeah, exactly, that's what he's been saying for two weeks. So, The opening statement starts with, uh, somewhat polemically, like we did, you'll remember two weeks ago, I really tried to hammer that at the beginning, defending this doctrine over against some other substitutes. And this paragraph begins polemically like that, stating the doctrine negatively. 
This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will. Now, the idea, I've said this before, the idea that this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, could be reworded as we believe you must keep yourself saved is clearly refuted again. So anybody who says, oh, you believe in the perseverance of the saints, so what you believe is that you have to sort of keep yourself saved or, or stay in the good graces of God so that you can be saved. What, what they're saying is, I haven't bothered to read any confessional statement on the subject whatsoever. I'm just basing this off of emotions and uh, false presuppositions. But it cl- clearly we're saying it depends not upon our own free will. Now, sometimes you might hear opponents of this this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints, or even opponents of once saved, always saved, eternal security, those who believe that you can lose your salvation, you might hear them say something like this, that Christ can't lose any of His people, and the promises of God cannot fail, but you can walk away. You can, of your own accord, turn away from the faith. You'll even hear apostates say, I was a Christian and I left that. We would say, no, you were not a Christian. What you thought you had was not the real deal. But you'll see this in those groups who would profess to remain Christians but still believe that you can fall away from the faith. Christ can't lose you, God can't lose you, but you have the ability to walk away. And saying this, they think they've found a way to preserve the saving power of God but also make sense of the fact that they, like we, know people who have professed to be Christians, have appeared to walk as Christians for a time, and then have left. So how do we make sense of this? So they just say, well, well, God didn't fail and Christ didn't fail, but those people of their own accord walked away from the faith. Whether an open rejection of their once professed faith or simply drifting away from an open profession and living a life void of any resemblance of Christianity, these people do in fact turn away. Again, the argument is essentially you have the free will to change your mind and walk away, or you have the free will to stay. Now, in our, in our present context, and, and a lot of the people that we're going to run into, men misunderstand and misuse this phrase, free will, not understanding that it has a long history in theological discourse. And some of this will be reviewed from, from when we studied this doctrine. When they say free will, what they mean is, I do what I want. Or, I must personally make a choice to come to Christ. To which we would say, yes and amen, we believe that, that is true, that's not the definition of free will. Both of those statements, I do what I want, or I must personally make a choice in coming to Christ. Both of those are true and would be affirmed by most Orthodox Christians. We would simply differ in how that will became free to make that choice in the first place and what condition it might have been in prior to making that choice. So many in this camp, the uh, free will means I do what I want or I make a choice They will also affirm once saved, always saved, or eternal security, even in the case of somebody who clearly displays in their life that they do not actually will to follow Christ. They do not crave Christ. They have no appetite for the Lord, no appetite for His people, no appetite for His Word. They want nothing to do with Jesus, but they made a choice one time, they made a decision one time, and therefore 
they are eternally saved. That's their position. Again, like I said two weeks ago, they use their free will to lock them into a fixed rate with God that even their free will can't get them out of now. When you try to balance both of these ideas together, it just is. Remember, they, they stood up at the altar, God took a picture, stuck that Polaroid in the, the, the scrapbook of life, and it's there forever. See, they got saved. That's, that's kind of how they view it. Now, that's not the way historically men have taken this idea. That, that concept is, is unheard of in Calvinistic or, and Armenian circles. If I've understood correctly, the Armenian position was that the will was bound in sin prior to regeneration, which we agree with, and that once a person comes to Christ, their will is loosed and made free, from which point they do have the power to turn from the faith in the future if they choose. Or at least that's an option on the table. If you read the, uh, the, the remonstrance from the Senate of Dort, they kind of threw that out there and they were like, but we're not really ready to make a decision on that just yet. But that was sort of an option. Again, both of these views are wrong because they don't consider true salvation as a past, present, and future work of God upon the whole man starting at regeneration and welling up into eternal life. Their concept of salvation is, I did this one time, and if I did that, then I can get myself out of it. A free will simply means that there are no external constraints upon the will of a man compelling him to crave something different than what he in himself craves. And in that sense, everyone has a free will. Nothing outside of any man forces him to crave what he does not in himself crave. Now others would say, well, we're bound in sin, right? But that's not outside of you, that's in you. Or we're slaves of righteousness, right? But that's not outside of you. That's something God has worked in you. It's not outside of you forcing you to do what you don't want to do. A lost man does what he wants to do. A regenerate man does what he wants to do because the work of God has changed him from the inside working outward. So again, in that sense, everybody has a free will. We're doing what we want to do. Again, our wanter has been changed. God has regenerated our wanter. But the confession says that the perseverance of the saints does not depend on their own free will. So we would say we don't stay in the state of grace simply because we will to stay there, even though as regenerate men and women, we do will to stay there. We want that. We crave that. If that were the case, then you'd lose your salvation every night when you went to sleep because you're not actively willing Christ. You're not desiring and craving Him, you're asleep. Every time your mind wanders from the things of God while you're working, and then you, you realize, I just went two hours, three hours, four hours, six hours, not even considering my salvation, not even considering eternity. Every time that happens, that could be a potential drifting off into eternity with no salvation. Every time we sin, at the root of it, we are choosing to satisfy ourselves rather than to please God. Every opportunity or every sin would be an opportunity, an occasion where we might lose our salvation or fall from the state of grace. Your will is not what is keeping you saved. Now we know that the regenerating work of God, or in the regenerating work of God, the Spirit of God comes and impregnates the soul with the divine principle from which the faculties of the soul then begin to operate as a new creation. 
And since the will is one such faculty, its base operating system becomes the Holy Spirit of God and the grace is imparted by the Spirit. What a marvelous thing. What a majestic thing that the Spirit has done to those of us who believe our will, we crave things that we did not once crave. But even in that... It's not even our free will under the influence of the Spirit that causes us to persevere. So that's negative. Now we have the doctrine stated positively. It does not depend on their own free will, but upon. Not that, but this. What does our perseverance depend depend upon? The confession here lists five pillars upon which our perseverance in the faith is built. First, the immutability of the decree of election. We know that the Scriptures teach the doctrine of election. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Who out of ethnic Israel obtained salvation? Romans 11.7, the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. The decree of election is the pretemporal declaration by God to save some and not others to a man, which means individuals specifically even distinguishing between brothers born into the same household. And the confession here references Romans 8.30. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now here it seems that the the authors of our confession would take this verse and the word predestined and make it parallel to election, although some, if we wanted to get technical, we could distinguish between those two things. But the predestining here is a predestining unto salvation. Those whom He predestined, He called, justified, glorified. That will be at the coming of Christ in glory, and will extend into eternity. So those predestined in the past, in eternity, will be glorified for eternity. And notice in this text, I've pointed this out before, but this is, I think, important. Those whom He predestined, those whom He called, those whom He justified. Three whoms. We're dealing with whoms, not witches. People, not purposes. It doesn't say that which God predestined. God God chose a system of salvation. It's people, those whom. The next reference that's given is Romans 9.11, which spells out the specificity of this election. Speaking of Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Again, here we have twins, born of the same mother, the same father, Isaac, the patriarch, the inheritor of the promise of God, and one is chosen to be over the other. Now some would say that this election is merely unto service because it says that the older shall serve the younger. It's just an election unto service, not salvation. The problem is, this is verse 11, which comes as an explanation of an argument that began at the beginning of the chapter 
of which verse 8 is also a part which says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The topic on the table in this chapter is not who's going to serve who. The topic is who are the children of God and who aren't. Who are the inheritors of the promise and who aren't. The decree of election says God picks some to be inheritors and not others. And this decree is immutable like God Himself because as all of God's creation, His Word is one with His character which is immutable. He is eternal. As we see in the the decree of God, He decreed in Himself from all eternity. The text that we always go to, Isaiah 46 Portions of 9, 10, and 11. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. 11. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. His decree is immutable and unchangeable. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nothing that God has purposed to do from all eternity can be hindered in any way and this includes His decree of election. The final reference here summarizes the point. Romans 9.16 So then it, that would be being included in the children of God and heirs of the promises of God, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Very clearly, not on human will. And this includes the entirety of our salvation, past, present, and future. It does not depend on our will. Does our will play a part in our sanctification? Absolutely. Does our perseverance depend upon our will? No. So that's the first pillar. The immutable decree of election. Second, back to the confession. Flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. What? is flowing here. I believe it's the immutable decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of the Father. When we see or reminded of this decree of election, most of us, if you're like me, you're stopped in your tracks and you would say, wait a second. Why would God choose to save any of this race? knowing that we are rebellious, knowing that we are wicked, knowing that even those of us who have been born again even have those moments where we go two, three, and four hours in a day not even considering our Lord. Why would He choose to save any? The answer is because of His free and unchangeable love. God is by definition free. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God is by definition immutable, for I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3.6. And what's the outcome of that? Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. We go back to Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We know that word foreknew does not simply mean that He knew of them beforehand, but it means that He set His covenant love upon them from eternity. Those ones that He loved from eternity. And again, those whom, not that which. Whom's not witches. Those whom. A lot of people say, well, yeah, God foreknew the decision you would make. That's not what it says. Those whom God foreknew. 
put all this together. God is free. God is immutable. God has eternally loved His people. And the immutable decree of election is the overflow of His free and unchangeable love. Now at this point, the confession makes a deviation and, and uh, we have sort of a, a substrain of the foundation of the Father's love. If you like making outlines, this is where you're really, you're really hitting tab and coming way out here. This free and unchangeable love of the Father is predicated upon the efficacy, that is the success or the effectiveness, the actual accomplishment of two things, the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. The merit of Christ, what He has earned for us. The free and unchangeable love of God is based upon the efficacy of what Christ has accomplished for us. John 10, 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ received a charge, a commandment from His Father. Son, lay down your life and take it up again. The Son said, I will obey. He laid His life down. He took it up again, fulfilled it perfectly. And in light of that, a special love goes out to the Son from the Father as an accomplished mediator and redeemer. He loves Him because He done this. And He earned salvation for His people. And the Father says, I love that about you. And then there's the intercession of Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says that He always lives to make intercession for us. Christ stands right now in the presence of the Father as a bodily representative of His people and He cannot be moved. And so because Christ, in His person and work, has merited satisfaction from the Father in a way previously unseen, and because now He lives in the presence of the Father as a representative for us, and now we're going to hit tab again, and union with Him. That is our union with this Christ. We have been joined into union with the One who has merited the everlasting love of His Father as our Redeemer, and who is standing in heaven now representing us before the Father, in light of that work, the Father loves Him. And in light of our union, the Father's love for Him extends to us. So put it all together, the free and unchangeable love of the Father is based upon the efficacy of the merit of Christ, the intercession of Christ, and the fact that we have been united to that Christ, therefore we get that same love. It's not just a love for us as creatures who are kind of cute and kind of cool and, and do some good stuff every now and then. Now this is the love of the Father for the Mediator coming to us in light of what Christ has done. And we do have to be careful here, and I've probably been guilty of this, we, we can take this to a point that makes it sound like the Father doesn't really love us. He really just loves the Son, and we're tagging along with the Son, and so the Father's like, okay, I guess I'll love you too. But that's not it. The Father actually, truly loves us. He loves His people. He has eternally loved us, foreknew us, predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. It is a real love that comes to us, again, predicated upon what Christ has done for us. And then we have two references here. Romans 5, 9 and 10. 
and John 14, 19. The first one from Romans. Since therefore, and notice the verbiage here, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's, that's future. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. Now, I think both of these texts are dealing with at least the present, but also, I believe, the future aspect of our salvation. We were reconciled, and we shall be saved, ongoing and into the future. How is that? By His life. That would be His present living, resurrection life, into the future, into eternity, His role as heavenly intercessor. Because I live, you also will live. Remember we talked about the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection coming to us as the power by which we're sanctified. As Matthew Henry says, our life, the life of the believer, is bound up in the life of Christ. And because His life is an indestructible life, ours is also indestructible. He is eternal and unchanging. Our life is bound up in Him. So that's the second pillar. The free and unchangeable love of the Father for those who are united to the Son who is an eternal Christ. Back to the confession. The third pillar, the oath of God. Our perseverance depends upon the oath of God, the promise, the vow of God. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. If God makes a promise to his people, he keeps his promises. His promises don't go away. Now here I want you to turn to a passage. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And I want you to see this. The reference is verses 17 and 18. I don't believe we spent enough time in Hebrews. That's why I want you to see this. And I actually consider just reading the whole chapter so you can get the flow. There's this warning of apostasy at the beginning of the chapter. And then the author says that he feels sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The topic is, is there salvation? But in verse 17 he says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now notice how the the subjects are described here. There are heirs of the promise, that is heirs of salvation in Christ, verse 9, things that belong to salvation, that's Almost always the the subject of the promise in the New Testament. It's the promise of salvation. So there are the heirs of the promise. Then there's we who have fled for refuge, that is fleeing to Christ for salvation. And also at the end, those who have a hope set before us. These are believers. In this text we see So when God desired, God desires that the heirs of salvation who have fled to Christ for refuge, 
who have hope set before them, He desires for us to know that His purpose in salvation is unchangeable. He wants you to know that. Therefore, He guaranteed it with an oath. He swore it with a promise. Now, if He would have just said, yeah, I'll save you, that would have been enough. That would have been God's Word on the matter. But He goes even further and swears it with an oath and makes a covenant that we'll see later. Now, here's what's, what I think is very useful to this doctrine and the idea of perseverance. Does that make us lazy in our faith knowing that God has sworn to save us for eternity and that He won't change His mind? Does that make us lazy? The answer is no. It produces, in the language of the text, strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's something we do. I have to hold fast. You have to hold fast. So when I hear, well, God has sworn with a promise to save and to keep saving and to bring this salvation to completion, I don't get lazy. That encourages me. If He's made that promise, then why would I ever let go? Why would I slow down? I've got nothing to lose. There's no risk here whatsoever. Again, who is it that holds fast? It's the heirs of the promise. We who have fled for refuge. We persevere in the faith knowing that God has vowed to save. It does not produce laziness in the faith. It's the very opposite. Back to the confession. The fourth pillar, the abiding of His Spirit and the seed of God within them. Remember, being saved, I said this two weeks ago, is in part becoming a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. We get God within us. Now the question we could ask is, would someone with the Spirit of God abiding in them and the seed of God in them would that person proceed to abandon their faith and apostatize if that has happened? We would say, no, it's not possible because continuing in the faith is a grace given by the Spirit. We have the Spirit who gives the faith living in us. The reference here given is 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Or keeps on sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Because he's been born of God. He cannot go on in sin. And one of those sins would be unbelief. It can't happen. It's not possible. So we have the Spirit of God within us. The fifth pillar is the nature of the covenant of grace. Remember... The covenant of grace is not called the covenant of grace simply because it sure was a gracious thing for God to make that covenant with us. The covenant of grace is not simply a covenant of unmerited favor. It's not simply a covenant of God giving to us that which we did not deserve, although these things are true. The covenant of grace is the covenant of grace because it is the covenant in which God guarantees the grace His powerful working in us by His Spirit, which we need to continue in the faith. He provides the very thing He requires. He gives it to us by giving us Himself. And the reference here is Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, 
that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is the covenant. God says, I won't turn from you. And I'm going to put something in you so that you won't turn from me. Forever, eternally, face to face with God. This is the covenant. Covenantal properties. Binding us. Turning God and rebels toward one another and keeping us there for eternity. If salvation is based primarily on something you did one time to which God responded in kind, then we might suspect that at some point, if we so choose, we can undo the deal. I did this, I got myself into it, I can get myself out. But if salvation is an act of God bringing us into covenant with Himself through the blood of His Son, which covenant guarantees to us His Spirit and an ever-increasing fear of God to the end that we will not turn away from Him, then we cannot and we will not turn from Him. And I use that word will as in our will. We do not will. The believer, the, the true saint, will never will to turn away from God. Now there might be times when we feel very distant. We feel very far away. We, we're, for whatever reason, maybe we don't have an explanation, maybe we know exactly what the reason is. The believer will at least will to be back in the good graces of God. We want it. We would never say, fine, if you're going to be like that, I'll have no part in this. I'll go do my own thing. A believer doesn't do that. We, we might not feel the presence of God, but in those moments, what do we do? We crave it. Our will says, I need this God. I need to be near Him. The, the will has been changed. The nature of the covenant of grace is a covenant of perseverance. We very often look at Ezekiel 36 where God says, I'm going to cause them to walk in my statutes and obey my commands. Well, turning away is not that. God says, I'm going to cause you to do the, the very opposite of turning away. I'll cause you to persevere. God doesn't say, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of J Jacob. I'll cause them to get saved and stay saved. That's not what He says. He says, I'll cause you to stay in the way of righteousness and stay in the way of obedience. He causes us to act. He causes us to persevere. He causes us to persist in His way. It's not merely a keeping, it's a causing because He is redeeming the whole man. And this is a comfort to us because I can look at myself now and myself some time ago and I can say, God is causing me to do something. This is really real. It's happening. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I used to be. This, this is a, a way that God preserves us by causing us to persevere and, and comforts us. The paragraph ends with this. From all which ariseth also, that means from everything we just saw, based upon these five pillars, we can deduce the certainty and infallibility thereof. The certainty and infallibility of our perseverance. It is certain. It is sure. It is inevitable. It is undeniable. It is irrefutable. It's infallible. It cannot fail. The true saint of God cannot possibly fall away 
but will certainly persevere in the faith until the end. Why? Because God has chosen them. Because God has loved them. Because God has sworn a covenant and an oath with us and made a covenant in the blood of His Son to maintain our perseverance. So again we see, in conclusion, that salvation, to use the language of Albert Martin, is all of God, all of Christ, and all of grace. And because of that, those who've been chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and brought into the state of grace, will continue in the faith unto the end. And if you read the book of Hebrews, this language in no way implies that we would say, hey, if that's, if that's how this goes, then I'm just going to relax. Because you've got all of these warnings. Don't you dare. You better beware. You better not neglect the meeting. You better, you, you better watch yourself. You better work with one another. Speak to one another. Encourage one another. Because it's a real tendency. If we begin to think, I think I'll just coast. What are you, what are you evidencing? The Spirit of God has never done a work in you. So this doesn't, this doesn't cause us to become lazy in our faith. It causes us to strive even further, to manifest those fruits as we've seen before. So let's stand and sing hymn number 402 together. And then we'll be dismissed in prayer.